Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. A hundred years ago, Los Angeles experienced an outbreak of the plague. It had the potential to wipe out tens of thousands. A doctor trained in St. Louis came to the rescue. St. Louis also has another piece of the story. It's all outlined in the latest book by native St. Louis and Jeff Copeland. It's titled Plague in Paradise, the Black Death in Los Angeles, 1924. It's a pleasure to welcome Jeff Copeland back to our studio for the fifth time. Can you believe that? It's your fifth round here, Jeff? This is unbelievable. But I want to thank you for having me again. I appreciate it so much. And I do want to give a shout out, too. I have to say that I absolutely adored your new book, um, Coming of Age, Liver Spots and All. It's If the readers out there or the listeners out there haven't read it yet, get it. It is fabulous. Well, thank you so much. The check is in the mail. <laughs> I thought it would be. That was quite <laughs> unexpected. But And I've enjoyed all of your books as well, Jeff, including this one. But, you know, I was wondering where you, you dug this up. It's a relatively obscure pure historical fact. Well, a couple of things here. The first is people haven't really heard much about this because they swept it under the rug. They weren't very pleased later with how they dealt with this outbreak. And part of that was everybody was horrified by how the Mexican community was treated in Los Angeles during the outbreak. So they shoved it under the rug a little bit there too. So that's, that's one of the parts of this story that I try to bring out as I, as I brought this thing to life. And it's, it's something that resonates so deeply today, as I hope we'll get into, because the more things change, the more they stay the same. That is very obvious with regard to the Mexican community back in the day, as it were. Yes. But let's back up a little bit and give me a kind of the broad stroke overview of what was going on in 1924. Okay, so basically Los Angeles and the state of California were touting themselves as the paradise of the West. They spent, in 1924, $1.7 million. And think of that in terms of today's money. I mean, it's an incredible amount of money. And they were touting themselves in a national campaign as the healthy city, rapidly expanding business and industry center, a great place to raise a family, a wonderful climate, get out of the snow, the wind, and the rain. It is growing by leaps and bounds. Then in September of 1924, a ship comes from Shanghai. It docks at the brand new east port of Los Angeles, and it brings some unwanted visitors, namely rats, but the rats were carrying fleas that had Yersinia pestis, which causes the plague. And once that showed up, everything changed for Los Angeles and California. When we're talking about the plague in this context, are we talking about the same thing that happened in the, in the 1500s or in Europe, the Black Plague, bubonic plague? Well, that's what frightened everybody because, think of this, this is 1924. It's six years after the major Spanish influenza outbreak that killed about 24 million people mm-hmm. worldwide. So initially, they didn't know whether this was another pop-up of the Spanish flu or this was the Black Death from the Middle Ages, which actually wiped out half the population of Europe. So at the beginning, they really didn't know what it was, but it turned out to be the bubonic plague that destroyed half the population of Europe. And obviously, they wanted to maintain the image that they were trying to create about the paradise, uh, as it were, in California. So they had to swing into action in a couple of different ways. Yes. Okay. So we had different groups here with different agendas and different courses of action. 
the economic leaders of the city, they just spent $1.7 million on touting it as the healthy place. The last thing in the world they wanted was to be known as Plague City. So they had a couple of decisions to make. Do they publicize this? Do they make it public? Do they try to treat everybody right away? Or do they try to shove it under the rug and have a media blackout, which is actually what happened? And that's how St. Louis gets involved, and we'll talk about that in a second. So we have the economic leaders, the medical community. They're not sure what it is initially. They have to call in experts. Once they discover what's going on here, they have to decide what are they going to do? Do they bring them all to Los Angeles County General Hospital and treat them, risking a spread? Do they keep them in the community, treat them there, and quarantine them? What do they do? And this is 1924, so this is before antibiotics. Treatment is very primitive and not much better than what it was in the Middle Ages. So they've got to decide what to do. And then let's not forget the Mexican community where this initially showed up. They're not being told anything that's going on. Suddenly, they discover armed guards all around where they're living. People are being taken away. They don't know where they're going to go, what's going to happen to them, and they've got decisions to make. Do we run or do we trust the civic leaders? Did the Mexicans know exactly what was going on in terms of what the illness was? Absolutely no idea whatsoever. None. Um, It started in the Lujan family household. That doesn't give away too much of the book. But all of a sudden, people started getting very ill with an illness none of them had ever seen before. And then people started dying. So they weren't really sure what was going on, but the best medical care they got were from doctors who had basically been, well, how do you say, have their license revoked. Um, They had these people come into the community that weren't that well qualified, and they misdiagnosed it up front, called it pneumonia, called it venereal disease. I mean, all these different things, and they didn't know what was taking place. Well, how did the disease present itself? Uh, You you mentioned like pneumonia, but what was actually going on? Okay, actually, the Black Plague manifests itself in three ways. Bubonic plague shows up first. And with bubonic plague, there are what are called buboes that show up, and and they're like a boil. Um, People get a high fever, respiration becomes very rapid, becomes very difficult to breathe. If they live long enough, bubonic plague moves into pneumonic plague, where it goes into the lungs. That's where it becomes deathly contagious to other individuals. Technically, the bubonic plague cannot be spread from human to human, but when it goes to the pneumonic form, coughing, sneezing, coming in contact with body fluids, that can cause it. And that was where it got to the point where you had bubonic cases and pneumonic cases in the Mexican community, and it took a while for them to figure out what what exactly this was. Yeah. The, uh, and the people who figured it out, main characters in your book, as you say, there's a St. Louis connection there. But, uh, well, let's go on and describe uh, the, the doctor who was involved. Okay, the doctor here, Dr. Matthew Thompson, um, this, is, this is one of those things that I always love. I always look for a St. Louis connection in all of my books because I'm a St. Louis kid. Mm-hmm. All right, so I discovered Dr. Thompson was one of the very first interns at the brand new Barnes Hospital when he was in his medical program. Mm-hmm. So what is that? Just a few miles from here is Mm -hmm, where he did his initial training. 
So he had a great love for the city of St. Louis, uh, eventually migrated out to the coast. But his training here, he said, made him one of the best diagnosticians around because of what he learned here in St. Louis. So there is that tie-in immediately there. You say at the very beginning of the book that you have to rely on your own imagination for some of this because of the lack of, of records. Just elaborate on that, if you would. Well, writing this book was probably the most challenging book I've ever had to do because, again, people weren't proud of what happened out there. So they tried to shove this under the rug six ways from Sunday. So I had to go to archives and record centers and private libraries to ferret out the information. And what I loved about writing this was I was discovering what was happening in a parallel way to how the Mexican community learned what was happening to them in real time in 1924. I would discover, for example, on a Tuesday, oh my gosh, they knew it was this, but they didn't tell this person, or this is when the media blackout came, and you know. So it was one of those like peeling an onion. Every day I learned something new about this, but it was so difficult to get the information. Now, every major event in this book is true. All I did was flush it out in the literary nonfiction form so it appears in the voices of the characters. I felt to give it a more personal side to it. That's one of the things I noticed in the book, and it, 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 stylistically, was that you went to first person from time to time and then back to third. I did, and I did that on purpose because Dr. Matthew Thompson in particular and his nurse, Maria McDonald, they discovered what was going on very slowly. They were not positive up front. This was actually the Black Plague. So I wanted the reader to feel the same uncertainty they felt and learn about it in the mm -hmm. same way they did. And I figured it would make it a little bit more exciting for the reader as it went along as well. Another key character <clears throat> in the book was a Catholic priest who uh, obviously a, a real person, but who yes. was uh, very much involved in all of this. Uh, oh, yes. Father Medardo Bruaya um, from Our Lady Queen of Angels Church. And I found it interesting as I was doing the research, um, it's also called La Placita, Our Lady Queen of Angels. It was actually the first building in what we now know as Los Angeles. It was the first building. So in doing the research, I went out to uh, La Placita. I had a lovely dinner with the current priest there, Father Arturo. And while I was there, I was allowed to look at all of the records. And I'm telling you what, the Catholic Church at that time kept absolutely meticulous records of this outbreak and Father Bruaya's involvement in it. But Father Bruaya was actually the leader of the community at that time who was interested in making sure that everybody was treated fairly and humanely when this was discovered, but he found out he was really up against it. Did the sickness ever go beyond the Mexican community? Was the Caucasian community? Well, I should say you have to read the book, <laughs> um, but I will give a little bit of a teaser. It did escape that community a little bit, even though they did everything they could possibly do to quarantine everybody and keep them inside. Yes. What was the ultimate <clears throat> de death toll? Um, if you don't mind, Don, I'm not going to reveal that because that's part of the book and the way it unfolds. I want people to see how the death toll would climb based on who knew what and what they decided to do about it. But I will say this, 
Part of the reason this was such a dramatic time was in 1901 to 1904, there was a similar outbreak in San Francisco. That was centered in the Chinese-American community. 2,500 mm-hmm. died there before the word really got out. Now, people knew what was going on in San Francisco. They didn't tell anybody. They shoved it under the rug there as well. And get this, the governor of the state of California was ousted from office once they found out what they did in San Francisco. All the high officials in Frisco had their heads roll as well. So in Los Angeles in 1924, while this is happening, they have to think, now, wait a minute here. We just saw what happened in Frisco not that long ago. What are we going to do? And that really flavored their decisions as well. So anyway, I sort of evaded your question Mm -hmm. there. So the readers will have to read to discover exactly how this grew. Well, we know it was a serious, uh, serious situation, Mm -hmm. needless to say. We have to take a break, Uh, Jeffrey Copeland. Let's do that now. We'll come back and continue our conversation. We're talking about his book, Plague in Paradise, dealing with the Black Plague, if you will, in 1924 Los Angeles. Back in a moment, this is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. Welcome back to our conversation with Jeffrey Copeland, author of Plague in Paradise. Jeffrey, I think one of the most striking things in the book, and you alluded to this uh, earlier, was uh, the treatment of the Mexican population in Los Angeles back in at this particular time. You said, and uh, it's very clear from the book, things haven't changed very much. A lot of the things that we're dealing with today and discussing today uh, were very prominent in 24 Los Angeles. You know, it, it's funny you mentioned that. I was just speaking to someone yesterday about the very same thing. I went out to Los Angeles while I was doing the research for this book, and I actually walked off the entire Mexican community that was involved in this story, or I should say where the Mexican community used to be. Ground zero for the outbreak is now the Los Angeles County Jail. Almost the entire neighborhood is a bus barn and a place where Union Station keeps their their train cars and everything. But basically, let's think about this. Have we heard recently about anybody wanting to build a wall? Well, that's sort of exactly what they did around the Mexican community at that time. Got World War I veterans, armed them to the teeth, and basically said, you're not leaving. You're not coming over to this side of the town. At the same time, uh, one of the officials, I read this in a, in a document, and I was, I was just floored when I read it. A direct quote. These are only Mexicans. If we quarantine them and let them die, this will take care of the situation, unquote. I read that and I thought, now, wait a minute here. But this is something that the more things change, the more they stay the same. I was in California for a book tour last week. When I was out there, there was an epidemic of typhus. I was visiting with a group and I asked them, well, how many of you know about this typhus outbreak? Most of them were wealthy individuals in the crowd. Four raised a hand. And I said, you mean the rest of you don't know about this? No, I haven't heard anything about it at all. One raised a hand and said, but it's only in the homeless. It's not really that important. Well, guess what? It started in the million-dollar homes in Pasadena. It Mm -hmm. didn't start with the homeless. But as long as there's a group to pin things like this on, they're going to do it. 
They did it in 1924, and we're still doing it today. Who, what, what uh, comprised this population? Were there a lot of illegals uh, living in this community? Were they people who had lived there for generations? Who were they? Well, in 1924, there was an Immigration Act that was passed, and I guess technically many of them would have been considered illegal at the time, but there was a reciprocity before that where individuals could come up from Mexico, work in the produce fields, work at the dock, work at the wharf, and so on. But this was a time when America was changing in terms of how immigrants were looked at, especially those who wanted to come here for work purposes. So, yes, many of them were scared to death to report their illness because they were fearful that medical people would come in, find them ill, send them back to Mexico, or if they weren't ill, still send them back as well. So it's still pretty much what's going on today as well. Those that didn't have the type of documentation provided or needed for the new Immigration Act in 24 were scared to death, Mm -hmm. and they didn't know Am I just going to be yanked out of here and be sent away? It was kind of complicated getting them out of that quarantined earlier uh, uh, compound to to the hospitals. It was because uh, many of them did not have the money to pay for medical treatment. And the government officials and the hospital officials thought somebody has to pay for this. Who's it going to be? So finally they had to decide what's right here. What do we do? Do we bring the individuals to the hospital no matter where they're from, treat everybody, treat everybody the same, or what do we do? Now, people who read this book are going to be shocked because here's something for you. Actually, it didn't really matter that they were Mexicans. They could have been from Germany, from France, from Sweden. It wasn't really the fact they were from Mexico that was the overriding reason they wanted to get these people out of there. This was a land grab. That's basically what it was. Greed came to the forefront more than anything else. Yeah, you mentioned in the book that that there were those who were planning to profiteer from all of this right from the get-go. Right from the very beginning. And you know what? They did. Hmm. But the question is, did Los Angeles really become the paradise of the West that they envisioned? Or today, as I discovered last week, does Los Angeles still have a lot of challenges that if they'd have dealt with this better in 1924, maybe their lives would be a little different today. One of the, uh, the heroes of the book is the, is the nurse. Uh, McDowell was there. Nurse Maria McDonald. M- McDonald. What a firecracker. Yeah. Yeah. That was a term that was described, used to describe her. Yeah. What I found particularly interesting about her was she kind of was a detective story in in the middle of all of this, too, as they tried to figure out exactly what was happening and and why it was happening and how it was happening. It seems to me that the the, uh, deductions that she came up with were not dissimilar to the way they discovered the cause of cholera in in England 100 years before that. She had a real advantage over the other nurses at the time. Her father was a very prominent doctor out on the East Coast, And she shadowed him as a little girl, so she knew more than the interns and many of the actual doctors at Los Angeles County General Hospital. So she had a knowledge base to use in order to help them find exactly what this was and how it was happening. And I also want to mention that this was actually, partially because of her, the very first time the medical community looked for what we now know as patient zero. They wanted to find where this initially started and then tree branch it out to find out who had it, where they could stop it, where they could block it. And a lot of it was because of her. 
Yeah, yeah. She was, uh, and the, a budding romance. We might uh, have to point that out as well. That there was a little of that going on. You know, it's really funny. Um, this is a book about the Black Death, and it was a horrible situation. But growing from this was one of the greatest love stories I have ever encountered in my life. Uh, Nurse Maria McDonald and Dr. Thompson. This won't run it for those who haven't read the story. Um, fall madly in love with each other, and they end up like a couple of junior high kids. They were so much in love. It was a great, a great story. Uh, it's a great story all the way around in terms of uh, teaching us a lot of history that most people uh, didn't know anything about. But let's get back to this other St. Louis connection. That being uh, the, the kind of surprised me, the, the way you placed this out, it had to do with St. Louis being kind of a jumping-off place for California. It Explain did. what was going on. It did. Um, St. Louis, I don't know how to put it other than the fact St. Louis was a thorn in the side of everybody in Los Angeles during this outbreak because we were one of the great railroad hubs. Now, this was before transcontinental air travel, so people came to California basically on trains. Well, a good number of them went through St. Louis here on the trains, picked up newspapers, and the St. Louis newspapers were daily dealing with the issue of the plague in California in Los Angeles. But there was a total media blackout in Los Angeles. So they were so angry every time a train would come that had any kind of connection to St. Louis, they would have to confiscate the newspapers and anything else they could get from those who had traveled from St. Louis. And it got to be a running gag out there. All right, St. Louis, enough is enough. Let's stop this business. Because they want it to stop for the multiple reasons we've talked about. If, if there was a blackout on getting information out of L.A., uh, how are reporters in St. Louis picking it up? There were, well, I always like to say what my father did. There's a squealer in every barn. Um, there were people that were traveling from Los Angeles back out to the Midwest, and many of them who did find out what was going on would actually talk about it. So it wasn't just St. Louis. Um, the New York papers picked it up. Chicago picked it up. But St. Louis happened to be the one that dealt with it most. In terms of the city officials who uh, you know, were kind of calling the shots here, what kind of marks do you give them for the way they handled all of this? It, it's a hard thing to talk about because for many of them, greed was really ruling everything that they did. But there were others that were genuinely concerned, not just for the Mexican community, but the fact that if this spread out, it'd be their own kids, their own, their own family members who would end up with this as well. So many stepped forward and said, darn the cost, I'll help with this. So I would probably give them a C or a C minus for how they behaved at the time. But you have to remember here too, there was all this vested interest in having the city grow they had their fortunes, literally, mm -hmm. put into making this the paradise of the West. So they had to balance, how much do I help, how much do I hide to protect my own personal interest? And that's a tough call in any era. Yeah. Another part of the book that was quite impressive, again, looking at the, uh, at the way these people were treated in the quarantined area was, they had no problem burning down uh, much of that neighborhood. There were, I will call them vigilantes, um, pretty much pushed forward by different parties who went in and they figured the best way to destroy the plague because they didn't really know much how to treat it was by a lit match and some gasoline. And the best way would be to destroy the germs 
by destroying everything. But think about it, at the time, these were the major treatments for the plague. Parents were told, have your children gargle with a mixture of water, salt, and lime juice, and that'll protect them from the plague. Of course it didn't. Get this, an IV of mercurochrome. Did you ever have a mom or dad or grandparent rub mercurochrome on you when you got a bump as a child? They gave IV solutions of that to people because they thought it would cleanse the blood and get rid of the germs. Well, it killed them. And then aspirin, strong coffee, and cold compresses on the mm -hmm. chest. So they had no idea how to deal with this medically. So a lot of vigilantes figured, we'll just torch the place. That'll take care of it. They did a pretty good job one night of destroying a nice chunk of the Mexican community. But then after that, Father Bruaya, Nurse McDonald, and Dr. Thompson stepped forward and said, uh-uh, not going to happen. Ultimately, uh, we only have a little over a minute left. Ultimately, uh, the problem was resolved, as it were. And what did that leave Los Angeles with? You mentioned that uh, what is constructed on that neighborhood uh, area now. What's the postscript of the story? Well, the postscript that is most important, I think, to me is this is the defining event, according to all historians, that led to the formation of the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm -hmm. And the reason it was formed is they wanted to take away local control where people could determine who would live and die based on race, color, creed, national origin, lifestyle. So the biggest legacy growing out of this is the way we deal with illness today and outbreaks of this type, which happen all over. The Black Plague in Madagascar last year, 2,500 cases, tremendous mortality rate, Ebola in the Congo, the Legionnaire's disease in Flint, Michigan last year they tried to hide. The legacy is we deal with people in a humane way today. We hope. All the result of what went on in Los Angeles in, uh, in 1924. Well, Jeffrey Copeland, it's a fascinating read, and anybody who's interested in history will uh, get a charge out of this book. It's uh, nicely done, as usual, and uh, important for us to see what came of it. Thank you, Jeffrey Copeland. Thank well, you for having me. The book me. is Plague in Paradise, and it's available wherever you find good books. Thank, thank you, sir. Thank you for being with us. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.